The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Living Well into the Future, where we speak with individuals from different generations about the most pressing issues of our time, from food and housing to health care and climate. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. Our show is all about exploring potential solutions to complex problems, drawing on the expertise and insights of people from different backgrounds and age groups. Through meaningful conversations and thoughtful discussions, we aim to inspire positive change and make a real impact in our communities. So if you're interested in learning more about these critical issues and discovering innovative solutions, Join us for Living Well into the Future. Together, let's work toward a healthy and secure future for all life on this planet. As you heard in Deep Dive 1, water is on our minds. Flooding, drought, polluted water, water for agriculture, for humans, for nature. In this episode, we'll be asking and answering these questions. Is there enough water? Is the supply threatened? Whose needs does it serve? Is there anything we can do to protect and, if necessary, restore our natural water systems? I worked on water issues in Texas, so I've reached out to guests from Texas, knowing that the diversity of conditions in a huge state with 10 ecoregions will illustrate issues that are relevant across the country. I hope you agree. Our guests are Suzanne Scott, State Director of the Nature Conservancy's Texas Chapter, who before joining TNC headed the San Antonio River Authority for 20 years. Ryan Smith, Director of Water and Science with the Nature Conservancy Texas, and Ted Flato, whom you have previously heard from in his role as co-founder and principal in Lake Flato Architects. In this episode, he is speaking as a landowner and founder of Headwater Alliance. Let's start with Suzanne Scott, State Director of the Nature Conservancy, Texas. Welcome, Suzanne Scott, to Living Well into the Future. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. The Nature Conservancy works throughout the country, along with other organizations. What do you think the challenges will be in the future? And how is the Nature Conservancy going to contribute to addressing them? I think that climate change is our biggest challenge, uh, along with the crisis for on biodiversity. Both of those two crises, climate change and biodiversity, are really what uh, we work on every single day. And the intersection of those two challenges that we see in in the management of our natural resources, both internationally as well as here in Texas. We're spending a lot of time trying to educate people about the value of nature. In other words, oftentimes nature is seen as a nice to have, not a need to have. And the more that we can get people to understand that nature has a function and it can function to mitigate the effects of climate change. It can also help us adapt to climate change. We need to really incorporate nature as infrastructure as we're moving forward. So we're spending a lot of time trying to look at practices, policy, 
techniques that people can use. We've already talked about the regenerative agriculture and having better soils and grasslands. That's a nature-based solution. That's something that nature is providing a function. Similarly, as you're talking about flooding issues, you could put in more natural infrastructure in parking lots or in neighborhoods, on roadways that can slow down, spread out, soak in water versus it just running off and having these high velocities, bringing with it all of the contaminants that come with it in an urban environment. We have to think smarter. We have to develop smarter. We have to incentivize these kinds of practices. And what we're finding is change is hard. When people have a recipe or a certain way that they've always developed, when you want them to change and look at a new way of developing using low impact development techniques or nature-based solutions or other things, the shift is slow and hard. And we're trying to get the community, the people to say, hey, wait a minute, we want our cities to look different. We want our roadways to look different. We want to be able to use nature in a way that's going to help us be able to adapt and mitigate the impacts of climate change. And we think if it comes from the bottom up versus the top down, we think that we're going to have a whole lot more opportunities to make change in Texas. We need to get policymakers to think about changing the way that we develop. We need to get policymakers to understand that we can use incentives. We don't always need to use sticks. We can use carrots to get people to do the right thing. So what we're really trying to do is get the public to get more engaged and more vocal. If you're doing a bond issue in your city, make sure that your city councils know, I want to use nature-based solutions. I want all your engineers to look at nature first before they go into their traditional infrastructure, look and see how nature can be used first. It's not going to be able to be used in all cases because of the situations, just like we did on the Mission Reach. We had to balance between flooding and protecting homes and ecosystem restoration. Those kinds of decisions need to be made every time you do a road, every time you do a flood channel, every time you do a culvert. And those are the kinds of questions that we need to start asking ourselves. I think the biggest challenge is going to be really changing the way that we have developed and we need to be smarter and we need to use nature. What can listeners do to support the efforts to have adequate water for nature and people. Absolutely. I think that, first of all, as simple as it sounds, I think that we would like everyone to know where their water comes from, first of all. So educate yourself about what's the source of water. And even though that may be simple, believe it or not, there are a lot of people that still think, oh, I just turn on the tap and there's the water. They don't understand where the source of that water comes from. So really understand your community and where the water's coming from, first of all. Is it collecting a reservoir? Is it underground? Is it an aquifer? Is it a river? Is it a, obviously reservoirs come from oftentimes are fed through rivers. Sometimes people get water from snowmelt or other, depending on where they are in the world. But understand where your water comes from and understand how how it's managed. Who are the entities that are managing your water? And really educate yourself about the system because then you can determine, okay, what are our challenges in our community? Is it a water quality? Do we have too many threats to pollution in our water systems. And that's ultimately something that's going to affect our drinking water or our groundwater. What do we need to do about that? So I think, first of all, educate yourself and be able to understand that. Then work on policy. We believe that you can get better scale of conservation for water 
really, when you think about policy, what is your city council doing? What is your water board doing? What is your state legislature doing? What are those things that we can all do to influence our elected officials and the policies that they're making so that we can get better development practices, we can get better protections for our natural resources, and get and again, looking at that balance between nature and people. But it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all because every community is not the same. So it's hard to say, this is the recipe every place. So you have to get yourself educated about the specifics of your community so that you can really engage. And then, you know, vote with your feet, decide whether or not that's the candidate you like, or if that's the policy that you like, and make sure that people are doing the things that are the most balanced and get engaged, ask questions. Citizens can't sit on the sidelines when it comes to the value of water and their natural resources. They must get involved because it's too precious for us to think that somebody else is taking care of these things. Most people are trying to make the right decisions, but I think it's good for us to challenge those things. We just did a deal right outside of San Antonio. The gentleman was going to develop a piece of property on a very pristine creek called Honey Creek. And we, the Nature Conservancy, had been involved in the Honey Creek natural area for a very long time, since the 1980s, protecting this very important pristine stream in Texas, Hill Country. And there was a developer that was going to put 1,600 homes on 500 acres, and that was going to create all kinds of runoff and all kinds of threats to a very important water system, not only for nature, but that same water system creates water for people into a reservoir that people in the hill country get their water supply from. So we worked with that landowner and we said, is this really right? Is this the legacy that you want to leave? And ultimately he decided instead of developing that into a huge subdivision, he donated it. Let me just say, we paid him to, to sell that property to Texas Parks and Wildlife. He did it at a discount. He lost money. He would have made more on the development than he did on the acquisition that we did of that piece of property. But ultimately, that property is now going to be protected and it's going to be added to a state park. So again, this decision that was made. The entire 500 acres? Yes. But again, it was a lot of difficult decisions, both on the part of the landowner and on the part of all of us that had to raise the money in order to make the transaction happen. But we worked with the state, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. We raised money from a lot of private donors and we were able to pay him enough for him to have enough money to choose not to do the development. And in this case, it was a win-win-win all the way around. He feels good about it, the landowner. Now we have a beautiful place that's going to be able to be enjoyed for generations to come by other Texans and other visitors. And we protected a very important ecosystem in the Hill Country. Good work. When you were general manager of the San Antonio River Authority, you had 8,000 miles of water under your jurisdiction. With the Nature Conservancy in Texas, there are 80,000 miles to work with. How is TNC addressing the future of those 80,000 miles? The state of Texas is a whole lot bigger than the San Antonio River watershed, that's for sure. And I think that obviously before I got here, the Nature Conservancy in Texas had really started looking at where those priority areas of conservation need to be. We can't do everything everywhere. It's impossible. But we do have a lot of partners that we work with. And I think that what we've tried to do over time is really try to figure out where we can provide the greatest benefit based on our 
science knowledge, our conservation expertise. Is there an overarching policy or objective that uh, the Nature Conservancy in Texas has with respect to water? If I had to boil it down into where we're really focused, I think it's this idea of trying to create a balance between people and the environment. We are in a fast-growing state and our pressures on water resources is intense. And as the city grows more and more, the demands for drinking water for people are going to continue to take much of that supply. And what we're trying to say is, of course, people are important. Obviously, we're all people and we all need to live and we need to support a growing state and the population that's happening here and the economic development that's always so important to our state. But we can't neglect the very important natural ecosystems that are there to protect. So what we try to do is look at balance as much as we possibly can and figure out how can we use the resources that we have in the most effective and efficient ways possible. So what can we do from the people side to be focused on conservation, to be focused on our land use? How can we make sure that every drop that falls on our land is used in the most efficient and effective way? It doesn't run off. It's not causing pollutants or erosion to our rivers and streams. How can we encourage land use practices that keep the water on the ground, like soil improvements and grassland restoration and all those things on the land that we can work with people? And then also on the river systems themselves, looking at water rights and how can we use those the most effective way that we possibly can. Someone's not using a water right. Can we dedicate it to the environment? So that's this sort of balance that we're constantly trying to do. And then with climate change, that, that's becoming even more challenging because we're going to have more serious droughts and more serious floods. And this idea of trying to balance between nature and people is going to become even more intense. Thank you, Suzanne. We'll get back to Suzanne, but let's turn to Ryan Smith, Director of Water and Science for TNC Texas. Welcome. Ryan, is there enough water in Texas to serve the needs of the people and the natural systems? Yes, we say it's bigger in Texas, but it's not just bigger. We've got about five or six states worth of challenges. And I think the answer to the question is yes, there's enough water. But Texas is growing, and it's not only a challenge now, but the challenge is going to be even greater as the population is projected to tremendously increase. So the challenge is even getting worse. So when our needs are getting greater, when they're already varied, we've already got a challenge, but we do have enough. The key thing is we need to use it differently and we need to be smarter with how we use it. And we need to do specifically a better job using existing understanding of how to use our water more efficiently, reduce demand, also work on the supply side. If we do those things, we do have enough. There are 10 eco-regions in Texas. In the deserts, there may be eight inches of rainfall a year. And then in the swamps of East Texas, they may get 56 inches. And for the other eight eco-regions, it could be anywhere in between. Given the diversity of needs, can you tell us about the Nature Conservancy's priorities? 
When we talk about our water work in Texas in five buckets, which equate to priority ways in which we engage in the water challenge. The first one is environmental water transactions, sometimes called environmental water markets, and really where we work in the water and agriculture realm a lot. How is that policy implemented? Environmental water transactions is an umbrella term for a variety of approaches to use financial or other incentives to drive better water use. And it could take the form of, and has in some places of the state where caps have been put on water use, like for instance, in the Edwards Aquifer region in Central Texas, there's a pumping cap that immediately sets up market conditions where we could actually buy and sell the ability to pump groundwater. But in more cases, it's different. It's working directly with ag producers using a variety of approaches, using acquisition of water rights or leasing water rights, but also potentially using different mechanisms to incentivize better crop practices on farm or even edge of field practices. And if we can use these ways of providing some financial benefit to some of these water users or other ways of incentivizing better practices, we can ensure that as these shifts are happening in Texas and things are developing, that some is left for the environment, frankly. Also do it in a way that agriculture producers can keep producing because that's a huge, another important aspect of Texas is our economy and really the global significance of agriculture. We'll put a link to TNC's recent study of water markets in our show notes on our website livingwellintothefuture.net. Next priority. Second is changing the way our dams are operated, which we can get a lot of benefit from working directly with the agencies and corporations that operate dams for downstream benefits. A lot of dams were built for rolling water supply, also on the flip side for controlling flooding. So obviously dams had a really important role in both of these water challenges. The downside has been as part of doing their job, dams have had a negative impact on environments, obviously within the dam, within the reservoir that's created itself and also downstream as we changed how much water is in the river at various times. It changes that downstream, which has profound changes on the ecosystem. So what we're doing is just simply asking the question, we have these dams here, they play an important role. Can we just take a look at how water is released out of the dam to maybe put some of that natural function back in the river downstream? And we call that dam reoperating for environmental benefit. And we have a really exciting partnership with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is by far the largest operator of dams in most parts of the country, including Texas. And since the early 2000s, we've been working in partnership with the Corps of Engineers to ask and explore this question and had a lot of success showing that, yes, we can, number one, figure out ways to release water out of dams to where it maintains its original purpose whether it's water supply or flood control or even hydropower, but change the way that we do that while maintaining those, but also provide some benefit downstream. We've done a lot of work with them to show that they can do that. And in some places around the U.S., including in Northeast Texas, in the Cato Lake area, we've actually been doing that for a number of years and seen the ecosystem responding. That example of Caddo, it's actually a dam upstream of Caddo Lake on a river called Big Cypress Bayou, where that lake upstream called Lake of the Pines is now releasing water differently for the benefits in the bayou and then Caddo Lake downstream. And we've actually seen things like the fish community respond and 
move back a little bit towards the way that things used to look in that area, in those ecosystems. And are they replicating it throughout the country now? Yes. That partnership with the Corps of Engineers that we call the Sustainable Rivers Program, it started with eight rivers in 2004. And Caddo Lake and Cypress Bayou were one of the original eights. There's now almost 50 rivers across the U.S. in the program. And we're right now in Texas looking at framing out this partnership and how it would look in three other river basins in Texas that might end up including up to 16 additional dams. So the, a lot of times in the environmental realm, the best way to make things happen is to dig in, figure it out, demonstrate success, tell the story, and it starts to grow. And we're seeing that in this dam reoperation space. We'll publish a link to Nature Conservancy's video that showcases the Caddo Dam work in our show notes on our website at livingwellintothefuture.net. Let's get to bucket number three. Water management and policy. How can we, number one, work within our existing water management and regulation such as it is approach to use best practices and also work within the policy formation space to improve the enabling conditions. Maybe we will always have to some degree groundwater use regulation based on the mineral doctrine, but there are ways in which we can put sideboards around that to, to help drive sustainability. The fourth one is working in the land water space. So we know that the land and water are intimately connected. And when we do land management, land protection, things like that, it has water benefit. And TNC is a large landholder in Texas. We have a large network of nature preserves. We also work with a lot of private landowner partners. And if we can change the way land is managed and even protected from development, that has a lot of water benefit. Where TNC is the landowner. Can you talk about how that promotes water use preservation protection? Sure. I think the thing that's a unique space that the Nature Conservancy often plays is we are a stakeholder because we are a landowner. And in Texas, we are actually a landowner and therefore a stakeholder in some really important places for water resources, particularly Central Texas and West Texas, where some of our preserves, which is how we refer to our land holdings, have some really important and iconic springs and reaches of rivers and things like that. Being that kind of a stakeholder really gives us an important role to play connecting back to those groundwater conservation districts or other local water managers. Since we're a landowner, we're a stakeholder, we're in a really unique position to help build the science, even in some cases help build the funding, and then on our land, potentially demonstrate land use practices that can provide water benefit. So in, in a lot of places like West Texas, part of that is just stuff that hasn't happened as a result of us having these places. Like they haven't been developed. They haven't been broken into to smaller chunks. Fragmentation is a huge force, I would say, in rural Texas where these large heritage ranches are being broken up into smaller pieces. And oftentimes in places where either we own land in fee or where we worked with these landowners that want to keep those ranches intact on conservation easements, 
we've shown by keeping the land intact, what land benefit, but water benefits also. And then in other places, particularly in East Texas and in grassland areas, where we have some preserves that actually have land that really need to be restored also, whether it's prairie or forest. And as we're doing the prescribed fire, other land use practices to restore the land health, soil health, we can also then demonstrate the benefits to water resources. And then the fifth one is nature-based solutions. And really all the previous ones are nature-based solutions also, but this one specifically gets to not only, but in part that second problem of where we have too much water. How can we use nature as infrastructure, for example, even for helping manage our flooding problem in places where the state has developed and made our normal challenge of, say, tropical storms and things like that that we deal with as part of living on the Gulf? We've made that worse in some ways, and how can nature be part of the solution? So those are our five thematic priorities for how to deal with both the land, with the water, biodiversity, and the climate crisis also. And they land in different parts of the state in different ways, but those are the our five priority approaches. Again, nature-based solutions is obviously is a very broad term. So all the things we've been talking about, these are nature-based solutions where we're trying to show the power of nature for, for solving all of our water needs, including water supply. But specifically this last bucket, when we are talking about drought, but the thing I really want to highlight here is we're really trying to look at how we can help Texas realize more the ability and the power of nature to help deal with that other problem, which is too much water. And particularly where we have things like tropical storms that create this natural flooding context for Texas. It's just part of life here. And then places where we've made it worse through land development and sprawl. Part of the solution to dealing with that problem can be Let's utilize nature and things like intact, healthy floodplains, intact, healthy watersheds to reduce the severity and the impact of flooding. And we're not saying that quote-unquote grade infrastructure is not needed, but as we're thinking about the solution to this problem, let's get all the benefit we can from green infrastructure, from nature-based solutions, because just like how things like dams and levees and things like that are infrastructure that are helping us deal with flood. So also, and maybe even more so, nature, healthy watersheds, intact floodplains are infrastructure that are helping slow down the water, storage. And as we're impacting those areas, we're actually making the problem worse. So can we protect the places where floodplains are still giving us some benefit? And in other places, can we restore them to maximize that benefit at different scales? So I think what we're really trying to do is, again, take advantage of and help the state implement the policy framework that we already have. So the state is toward the end of implementing a relatively new planning process in Texas, which is flood planning that was really set forth by a couple of these very impactful hurricanes that we've seen in, in the last five years or so. So we're going through this process similar to how the state has had a water supply planning approach to, to have a systematic approach to planning for the future of water supply. We have this process that's doing the same thing for flooding. And one of the main things that we're trying to do is to make sure that there is a lot of knowledge that's been developed around the world on how to use green infrastructure and nature-based solutions for this. But one of the first things we need to do is just make sure that information is delivered both to the process, but also a lot of the ways that this will be implemented is it's going to lead to funding for 
flood control, flood management, flood risk reduction projects, that funding is going to be delivered to local scale municipalities. And part of the way that we're going to make sure green infrastructure is part of that is there needs to be an awareness at the level of those municipalities to the potential here. And the fact that actually an intact floodplain is not a negative thing. In fact, it can be a positive thing. And then working with them together to to find ways to utilize that available funding. Is that where you're involved with local governments as well as the state government in order to get that message and get at the table to have a hand yes. in policy? Yeah, it's multi-pronged. It's at various scales. So it's statewide. The way this process is being implemented is through a regional approach. So there are flood planning regions, and there are some of the key stakeholders, including river authorities, that are guiding and implementing and really the leaders in the approach. So we're engaging with, at that scale too, the sort of regional approach that's planning for how to do this. And then there's an economy of scale there too, in delivering the information, delivering the tools. But then we also anticipate, yes, at the local scale, working with communities to to take advantage of the funding that will be funneled through this planning process. Regular listeners to Living Well into the Future have heard our discussion of nature-based solutions to flooding issues in Episode 12, Working with Nature, available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's return to Suzanne Scott and find out more about successful programs and solutions to water issues. Let's focus particularly on the mission reach portion of the $600 million river restoration project she oversaw as general manager of the San Antonio River Authority, working with the Army Corps of Engineers, which had converted the natural river into a cement channel for flood control purposes. Immediately when the Corps completed that channelization project back in the 70s, the community started just generally expressing their dissatisfaction with the fact that the river was changed from a natural river into a typical trapezoidal channel. And uh, the community kept saying all the natural elements of the river had been taken away uh, in, the, in the spirit of flood control. The questions <clears throat> arising with the Corps of Engineers, hey, is there some way to do this in a more naturalized way? And of course then, the Corps of Engineers only had one way of doing things, and that was just straightening channelizing they didn't really think about doing flood control in any other way about the late 90s they added a mission to the corps of engineers of environmental restoration so they were starting to look at how could they do flood protection in a way that is more sustainable and takes into consideration the environmental needs of the river in this case so we went back to them after we had done this initial local analysis and we had to get the original authorization of the project changed to include ecosystem restoration so that the Corps could actually come in and do a full analysis. So we did that in through an act of Congress back in 2000. We had actually added ecosystem restoration and recreation as project purposes so they could look at restoring the river, maintaining the flood control, and then adding recreational benefits that the Corps could fund. 
So that was really the impetus for the Mission Reach project. And it now has spurred out the Westside Creeks, which is the next phase of that project. Because there was 13 miles of the river and tributaries that were channelized by the Corps of Engineers for flood control purposes. And now all of that is now being looked at for ecosystem restoration. It's the restoration as effective in flood control as the channelization had been? Yes. We call it a highly engineered natural channel. They've used techniques that are called fluvial geomorphology, where they go in and they look at how the river can actually be more stable. The Corps has learned over time and has gotten better even since, looking at slowing down the river, spreading it out, having more meanders, taking out some of the steepness of the river, so that it would operate more as a natural river. So that is what's happened. And, and the, the challenge is, you're building it in an urban environment. So when we had to build that project, we had to put in some hardening. It couldn't go all the way back to a natural channel because you have all this upstream impervious cover that's all coming down into the river. So the velocities that the river has to manage were much different characteristics than they were back in the day. You have to manage for the other watershed influences So it's not completely natural, but we were able to put in better naturalized plants. We used engineering techniques that allowed for natural channel protections and put in riffles and other ways to not only slow the river down, but also provide oxygenation and all the other things that affected the habitat in a positive way, but also protected the the banks. And it, it was very challenging. I mean, the river, because we had to build it as the the weather patterns, et cetera, were changing. We had uh, some pretty significant floods uh, while that project was being built and soon after it was completed and the the restoration wasn't fully uh, grown in. There's an establishment period for any kind of restoration project. So we had some periods of ripping it out, having to rebuild it, ripping it out, rebuilding it. But now I mean, it's been completed since, I guess, October 2013 was the final phase. So it's been almost 10 years since the last phase was completed. So it's grown in a lot more and it's much more stable. They're not having to fight the influences of the watershed as much as they used to. The number of birds that have come back too, I mean, besides the management of the flooding, the challenge that they're having right now, the River Authority, is when you have a natural environment, other uh, native plants come in with every flood. So you've got tree seeds and other trees that are coming in voluntarily into areas where, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, it was a highly engineered natural channel. So there were certain areas where they knew they couldn't have a lot of uh, density of stems. So they've had to go through some exercises of thinning out where trees have come in naturally to ensure that the flood protection of the channel is still maintained. If you let it go, wild, just like you would in any river, trees are going to come in areas where maybe they would cause uh, more uh, rise in the river. So that they're having to manage to make sure that the ecosystem restoration project is successful, but also that it still provides flood protection, because otherwise it could end up causing more flooding. So that's why the management that, you know, getting to your earlier question about is it effective, it's effective, yes, but it has to be managed and maintained to ensure that effectiveness is maintained no. over time.
Another successful program, one that I worked on, is the City of San Antonio's Edwards Aquifer Protection Program. The Edwards Aquifer had been San Antonio's sole source of water for decades, if not over a century. Even with population growth and development, it is still the primary source of water for the city. The citizens of San Antonio taxed themselves to fund a total of $325 million to protect land above the aquifer and the aquifer recharge zone. The local land trust I headed in the 2000s worked with the city, as did the Nature Conservancy and initially the Trust for Public Land. We worked to acquire land to protect the aquifer, sometimes by buying it outright but mostly through conservation easements. The program has protected 177,000 acres to date. Here's what Ryan has to say about it. You referenced the Edwards Aquifer in San Antonio. Since that water is recharged as it comes out of the hill country and hits the recharge zone, we want to make sure that water stays clean. But another key part of the Edwards Aquifer is that once it gets there, how do we use that water in a sustainable way? And that's where, because of the endangered species lawsuits and the creation of the Edwards Aquifer Authority, um, there is that framework in place for the pumping cap that we can then manage to. So it's a multi-pronged approach, and we need to bring that to other aquifers too, where the source water protection is in protecting the quality and the quantity in some cases, but we also still need to not lose sight of managing our demand for water. That's a huge piece of the puzzle that San Antonio has been helped with and is a world leader in demand management, but it's largely because of that unique endangered species context. But we've learned lessons there that we can then bring to other places to help manage demand and balance the water budget. Suzanne, how does the Aquifer Protection Program and others like it in Austin and elsewhere fit into the Nature Conservancy's water work in Texas? Very important. Edwards uh, Aquifer Protection Fund really looked down throughout the nation possibly globally, as a wonderful way to connect land protection to source water protection. That project started as acquiring land in sea. They realized very quickly they were going to get a whole lot more protection through conservation easements. Of course, then it moved to conservation easements, and we've been one of the land agents with the green spaces since the beginning. And the idea of having conservation easements on private land to protect that source of the aquifer and protecting that recharge so that the water quality as well as the water quantity can be protected in the aquifer has been extremely successful. And we've used it as, as an example of what we need to be doing in other places in the States, but also can be done in other places in the nation because we have a piece of legislation that's going through the legislature right now just passed the House trying to get it through the Senate to establish a land and water conservation fund. Texas is one of now 13 states that does not have a dedicated source for land and water conservation. So we're trying to get a, this a dedicated source established and so that there can be more funding at the state level to do these kinds of programs to have protection. Suzanne mentioned that the Nature Conservancy, as well as the local land trust, work as land agents on San Antonio's Aquifer Protection Program from the beginning of the program. I'll share a bit of my experience of more than a decade ago. Ryan mentioned 
land fragmentation. We saw it in real time as large tracts of land were being cut up to put up more housing developments, more shopping centers, more roadways. Tops of hills were shaved to better perch hotels and housing. Large land parcels were becoming rarer and more expensive over the aquifer. So the program, overseen by a conservation advisory board, turned its attention to the land over the Edwards Aquifer Recharge Zone. The land acquisition team worked with owners whose land was identified by the scientific advisors as over the Edwards Aquifer Recharge Zone, and then determined if they were interested in placing a conservation easement on the property in exchange for payment. The land acquisition team worked through the process with the landowners and explained that with a conservation easement on the land, the landowner could continue to live on the property and use it, but it couldn't be developed, and it had to be used in a way that protected its value to recharge the aquifer. Then members of the team, including geologists from the San Antonio water system who determined whether the features did or didn't contribute to aquifer recharge, went out to look at the property. The investigations revealed waterfalls, caves, cliffs, and other features on land not open to the public since most of the land in Texas is privately owned. One property that was included in the program had a sinkhole big enough to swallow a Volkswagen bug, a great entrance for water to pour into the aquifer. The program continues, but given the population growth and development over the aquifer, the city has had to develop other sources of water. The aquifer is still the primary source, though. Suzanne Scott advised us to get educated about our water and to work on policy with elected officials. And that is exactly what Ted Flato, co-founder of the award-winning architectural firm Lake Flato, did. Hello, Ted. Thank you for speaking with me again, this time wearing the hat of a rancher, a landowner. You founded the Headwaters Alliance. Can you tell me what it is and how you educated yourself about water? Our alliance is a group of, at right now, 200 landowners and growing. We have a lot of really thoughtful advisors, and those advisors are some of the same people that you're speaking with during this program. So we have a well-informed group, and there's lots of people putting a lot of time into this effort. 200 members in a period of six years. Is that a multi-generational effort? Yes. It's critically important that it's multi-generational. Typically, we began with a lot of people my age because probably sometimes we have a little bit more time. But it is, in reality, something that the next generation and the next generation after that are really the ones that need to be involved now and, and work on it. So that's exactly what we're doing. One of the discussions that we had most recently on the dry banks of the Little Blanco, we're uh, talking about how to get our younger generations involved. And we had a number of members show up. Their adult kids came in their 30s, and we had a really great discussion 
about that. Can you tell me something about what propelled you to take action in the last several years on the status of availability of water for future generations? Oh, I appreciate that question. It's very challenging times. The state has been blessed with a robust economy. Population is booming in Texas. Our, our entire state is increasing in population significantly every year. The land is 99% privately owned, and at least half the state is a pretty dry place. And then you add climate change to that. And so just during our lifetime, you can see that the pressure on this really limited resource is something that you cannot just sit there and ignore. And then currently, unfortunately, these days, the powers that be are fairly averse to tackling these challenges. There are lots of other challenges they see are far more important. And all it takes is a drought. We're now in a second drought. We had a drought a number, yeah, maybe four or five years ago. We just recently had one of our alliance meetings out on one of our members' ranches, the beautiful place of the Little Blanco. And the land looks quite lovely, really. We've had some great spring rains. It, it was beautiful green grass. It looked like, as I would say, Ireland with cactus. But their little Blanco, the stream, was completely dry. And that is the case right now because we've had a much lower rainfall in some parts of the state for almost three years, but in others, maybe a year or two. So a lot of the rivers and streams are quite low. And uh, that's a natural condition right now. For the most part, our planet is getting hotter and it's drier. And so those are natural conditions that are going to be more severe. But if you factor in the next part, which is a population that is expanding and moving out into the country, and each of those new persons moving into the country is needing water and needing a well, and before you know it, we won't have that level of water in the aquifer to supply the rivers and streams. So one hurdle was thinking about pristine water, which was relatively easy, I think. But the next is the quantity issue. And that is a situation where having more science available so people can better understand the connection between groundwater and surface water. The more we're able to develop the science, the better people can understand the challenges. And that's kind of the next step. If enough people understand the challenges and then it can speculate on where it's going to go if we don't make some good decisions. Is the Headwaters Alliance now an organized entity? And if so, who are the participants? We started the Headwaters Alliance as a landowners. There's lots of very thoughtful environmental groups, but this one we thought because the challenges with water is the private property rights that are very, very strong in the state of Texas. We are not a nonprofit. We're organized, but what we figured out is that there are plenty of fantastic environmental nonprofits that already exist. And so what we do is we work with the Hill Country Alliance, which is focused in our same area. And when we have causes and threats and opportunities, we end up often using that organization to assist us in, in some of those efforts. We decided to have an alliance of, of river owners who would be 
coming from all walks of the political spectrum. And we all came together with a common goal, which is to keep our rivers and springs flowing for generations and hopefully flowing all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So it entirely benefits the state of Texas. Over the past six years, have you consolidated an objective? Is there a plan of action? It's a long game in the state of Texas. It's definitely something that the next generation will probably still be working on. But the most important thing is first building alliances and friendships. And often we see when there's particular challenges, we see those as opportunities. We come together and we work together to see if we can solve some of those challenges. For example, a lot of the rivers in the hill country are what are labeled as pristine rivers. They're rivers that are flowing well above most of the towns and cities in the hill country. And so they're in a very pristine um, condition. And we hope that those these pristine rivers would stay uh, in those conditions forever. And there have been some threats towards that. Some summer camps, for instance, wanting to do some direct discharge into those streams. And so that was an opportunity for a number of our landowners to come together and to ultimately work with that camp uh, to persuade them that there would be a better way to do it. And, and we were successful. We did that with two camps. It wasn't easy, uh, but we ultimately all came to a, a good conclusion there and we kept them from putting wastewater in the nearby streams but we also were very excited that they were using wastewater for their agricultural or their irrigation needs, which was critically important because often we're worried about the quality of our water and our rivers, but also the quantity. And so if camps, for instance, if they're needing to do a lot of irrigation, you would really prefer them to use their wastewater for that irrigation. In both of these cases, these camps were thoughtful and progressive about thinking about that. It's just the details that needed to be worked out. And from that, because a lot of those kind of things end up being in dispute with the TCEQ, some politicians think that maybe an easier way to do it would be to just work with our regulatory body. And so we're currently doing that and we're making some real headway on that one. It began first as a fight with a summer camp and now we're working with the TCEQ because it's very expensive for the state of Texas to fight these challenges, and it's very disruptive for the summer camps or anyone to not know what the rules are. And so we've made some real success. When you said we are working with TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, do you have a delegation? Have you hired lobbyists? Have you hired attorneys? How do you approach them? We put a few of our members of, of our alliance in charge of this effort, so we were a little bit more streamlined. And then, yes, we hired a, a lobbyist lawyer to assist us in working with the TCEQ. And in the first round, we lost two votes. There are three members in the TCEQ, three supervisors, I believe they're called. Anyway, it was a two-to-one vote against us to make these pristine rivers secure of not ever getting any kind of direct discharge. But there was enough discussion about it that let's see if we could maybe tinker with the rules a little bit. One of the opponents was the Home Builders Association. They were concerned that that they would limit their opportunities. But the more they thought about it, the more they considered the importance, the value of the land often is 
based on the quality of the water, they realized that it really probably was very good business to keep rivers in their pristine conditions. If you think of these wonderful parks and places on the Frio and the Guadalupe and the Nueces, I mean, they're... That's quite a victory given the tradition. It was an enormous victory. And it then allowed the TCQ to suddenly go, oh, okay, it sounds like a lot of people are coming together with this general idea. So that was one, I honestly thought in the very beginning, the idea of pristine water and keeping it that way would be an early success for our group. I thought that's kind of low-hanging fruit. It seems like, why would you not want to have these rivers that have been in this wonderful condition? And there are a, a lot of the reasons why people go to the hill country. Why would you ever want to change that? Then why would a summer camp ever want to change that? None, none of it makes any sense. But people are always fearful of rules. That's part of the challenge in Texas is rules. And so there's an aversion to rules. But Often things are needed so that everyone can come to agreement that this is for the good of the state, and it is. So I think in that case, I'm hoping that we'll have some good success there. The Headwaters Alliance is educating local and regional officials, an action in which Ryan Smith of the Nature Conservancy participated. We've tried on several different legislative sessions to get things passed and we found we couldn't get anything passed you know it's even the simplest things you can't get passed about a year ago we came up with the idea of a leadership institute and in the leadership institute the idea is to engage regional leaders every month they get together so one it's a way of getting to know each other from different counties and such but all in the hill country and then we, part of the Hill Country Alliance, and I also have been involved with their programs. For example, they came out to the ranch for an overnight and we talked about water and we had Ryan Smith there and we had some of the same people that you have and had some of the same conversations that you're having right now, but with that group. And they're water district members, they're county judges, they're mayors, Fantastic. but just to have them for a little while together. And we even invited a county judge from my county, and he had a different perspective than these ones who had chosen to join this institute for this years. But it was just healthy to get people together. There were no decisions made, but it was just hopeful knowing that that we could do something on a regional basis. Thank you for leaving us on that positive note, Ted Flato. We now have come full circle from the work that the nonprofit Nature Conservancy is doing across the spectrum, working with individual landowners up to local, regional, state, and the federal government, to the Headwaters Alliance, who are individuals working cooperatively among themselves and with expert advice with state, local, and regional officials to protect water for the future. Thank you to our guests, Suzanne Scott, Ryan Smith, and Ted Flato. You can find out more about our guests and the topic in our show notes at livingwellintothefuture.net. Leave us a message. Tell us whether you found information that you could use that inspired you. If you're moved to find out where your water comes from and whether and what is being done to protect its quantity and quality. If you had an experience you'd like to add, we'd love to hear from you.
In our next episode on water, we'll go back to Char Miller and talk about the environmental history of dams and other water infrastructure. For a generational perspective, we'll speak with Char's student, Spencer Nicholas, who undertook a project that has relevance to his and our future. Subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find us. Thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali, WTBR-FM 89.7 Pittsfield, and the Berkshire Eagle for their support. Our music is written and performed by Michael Koppenheffer. The opinions expressed in this program are those of our guests, and not WTBR, Berkshire Ali, or the LWITF production team. Thank you.